Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Peter Husey, and I'm Director of Strategic Deterrent Studies at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and I want to welcome you to our Nuclear Deterrent Seminar Series. We have two very distinguished guests this morning, Dr. Matthew Kronick from the Atlantic Council and Mr. Matthew Koslow of the National Institute of Public Policy. Dr. Kronick is a professor of government and foreign service at the Georgetown Edmund Wall School of Foreign Service. He's also deputy director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. He previously served in the Secretary of Defense Office of Nuclear and Missile Defense Policy and is the author of The Logic of American Nuclear Strategy. Mr. Koslow is senior analyst with the National Institute of Public Policy, previously served in the Secretary of Defense Office of Nuclear and Missile Defense Policy, and has just recently finished a report on GBSD and Miniman 3, which I highly recommend. Welcome uh, both of you gentlemen, and thank you for joining us today. I'd like you to both, both first start with a few opening remarks of 10 to 12 minutes or so. And as a note to our audience, feel free to raise your hand using the function on the app or submit a question in the Q&A window during the discussion. And we'll get to your questions in the second half of the hour. Thank you both for uh, being here. And I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Kronig first for his opening remarks. Great. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Peter. It's really a pleasure to be back speaking at your breakfast series. I've had the honor of uh, speaking here several times over the, the years. A pleasure to be with the Mitchell Institute and with uh, my colleague, uh, Matt Koslow. Um, so in my opening remarks, I wanted to talk about the uh, important role um, U.S. nuclear weapons play in international security, uh, the importance of modernization, and then what we might um, expect uh, to see from the Biden administration's um, nuclear policy and posture. Uh, so the first thing I, I'd like to say is that, that I really think U.S. nuclear weapons have been one of the greatest forces for good uh, in the world over the past 75 years. And I think that uh, maybe for obvious reasons, nuclear weapons sometimes have a negative connotation. Uh, but if you look at uh, what America's uh, nuclear posture has accomplished, it's really quite remarkable. You know, U.S. nuclear weapons are special in that we don't use our nuclear weapons only to uh, protect ourselves, but really to protect uh, the entire free world, extending nuclear deterrence over uh, 30 formal treaty allies in uh, Europe and Asia and other informal security partners. And um, over the past 75 years, uh, through extended nuclear deterrence, we've provided geopolitical stability uh, in Europe and Asia, zero great power wars in, in 75 years. Um, we've contributed to the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. Our allies have been able to forego independent nuclear arsenals because they rely on uh, America's um, nuclear deterrent. Uh, so there's a lot of talk now about the rules-based um, international system and, and saving the U.S.-led rules-based international system. And, and I, I, I think that U.S. nuclear weapons are really the bedrock of this uh, rules-based international system. We've created these gardens of peace, uh, prosperity, and, and freedom in, in Europe and Asia. Uh, and North America, and I think it's no coincidence that these are also the regions of the world that are protected by um, U.S. nuclear weapons. Um, so maintaining a robust U.S. nuclear posture uh, is important, uh, and there has been a bipartisan uh, commitment uh, really for decades to the United States having a strong uh, deterrent um, force. Uh, the, the major challenge we face now, of course, is that our nuclear weapons are getting old. Um, they were built in the 19, uh, at the end of the Cold War, uh, I don't know if any of you drive cars. If so, they probably weren't built in the 1970s and 80s. Um, if they were, they probably don't work very well. Uh, and so we, we need to modernize um, nuclear weapons for a new era. There is a bipartisan uh, consensus to do that, started by President Obama, uh, continued by President uh, Trump. I hope will be continued by President Biden. Uh, we need to modernize the uh, all three legs of the triad, uh, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, the bombers uh, and the submarines. Uh, we also need the LRSO, uh, long-range uh, standoff option, and I think the supplemental capabilities called for in the Trump nuclear posture review are also important, especially for uh, escalate to de-escalate type scenarios we could face from Russia, but also due to some of the challenges I think we could see uh, with the Chinese, the growing Chinese threat uh, in the coming years. Uh, now, some people um, are opposed to modernization, are looking for ways to scale back modernization. Can we cut a leg of the triad? Can we um, delay modernization? Uh, some are saying maybe we should reduce the, the size of um, the arsenal. 
and, and I think that would be a mistake. Um, and uh, doing any of that, I think, would hurt all uh, four goals of nuclear strategy uh, articulated in the last nuclear posture review. I think it would hurt the U.S. ability to deter nuclear and non-nuclear attacks, uh, hurt the ability for the United States to assure its allies, um, uh, 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 make it harder for us to achieve our objectives if deterrence fails, and make it harder for us to hedge against an uncertain future. Then continuing with the program of record uh, directly contributes to all the major goals of U.S. nuclear strategy. Uh, cutting or de delaying in some ways uh, would undermine that. Um, moreover, the benefits that people talk uh, about for delaying uh, or reducing uh, modernization plans, uh, you know, the arguments aren't very uh, clear. One of the arguments that's often made is cost, uh, but that doesn't really make much sense. As Ash Carter, Obama's Secretary of Defense said, nuclear weapons don't actually cost that much. Uh, modernization plans come to something like five or, or six percent of the U.S. Defense Department. Um, Secretary Mattis and others said that nuclear deterrence is the most important mission of the U.S. Department of Defense. And so, um, uh, you know, is five or six percent of the defense budget too much for the most important mission? Uh, reasonable people can disagree, but to me, it sounds like a, a good um, bargain. Uh, and I um, have a recent report that I hope to talk about more in Q&A about um, some of these proposals to reduce the size of the ICBM force. Uh, so plans now currently call for 400 new intercontinental ballistic missiles. Some are saying, well, maybe we can go to 300, maybe we can go to 200. And so in my report, I uh, talk about how that would hurt U.S. nuclear strategy. And, and there's really no benefit um, to very little benefit to doing that. And, and on the cost equation, uh, point out how little we would save by reducing the size of the ICBM force and point out uh, somewhat humorously that Americans spend more on uh, much more on Doritos, Cheetos, and Funyuns um, every year than we're planning to spend on modernizing uh, ICBM. So, you know, um, both are important, um, obviously, but, you know, as uh, Secretary Mattis said, we can, um, we can afford national survival. Um, uh, now, uh, some would also say, well, this is inconsistent with U.S. arms control commitments uh, that we, um, need to um, be making progress on Article 6 of the NPT. Uh, we should keep new start in place. We should pursue trilateral negotiation with China. Uh, and um, I, I think that a lot of that is true. Uh, the United States uh, should pursue um, arms control, but that's not inconsistent with modernizing uh, the triad. And in fact, I think there's essentially the uh, kind of bipartisan centrist uh, consensus that we have strong deterrence and strong forces and strong arms control, and uh, there's there's nothing inconsistent uh, with that. You know, modernizing the force doesn't violate NPT, doesn't violate um, New Start. I mean, the biggest obstacle to arms control right now is not uh, U.S. modernization plans; it's whether Russia and China are interested. You know, we see Russia violating other arms control agreements; doesn't seem interested in negotiating a follow-on to New Start, uh, and China has never been a, a formal participant in in uh, formal arms control agreements. So that's the real challenge for arms control, uh, not US um, uh, plans. So the looking forward to the uh, what, what we can expect from the Biden administration, I think um, my hope is that they will continue uh, with the modernization plans. And I think if you look at Kath Hicks um, testimony, for example, uh, she uh, expressed support uh, for the triad and, and for modernization. Um, she did raise some questions about the timing and, and the scale of modernization, and so that um, concerns me somewhat, but um, I, I hope that uh, they will continue with the full modernization plans. Uh, one, one of my things that I worry about is reducing reliance on nuclear weapons. In the interim national security strategy guidance released just a few weeks ago, the Biden administration said they want to reduce uh, reliance on nuclear weapons. Uh, this is consistent with what the Obama administration said um, 10 years ago. Uh, but of course, the, the security environment is much different today than it was 10 years ago. Uh, there was a plausible case to be made that you could reduce reliance 10 years ago. Uh, but now the, the nuclear threat environment has really deteriorated. Uh, Russia, China, North Korea all expanding and modernizing uh, their uh, nuclear forces, relying on nuclear weapons more in their strategy uh, in some ways than they were 10 years ago. And so I, it's, I don't see how the security environment uh, allows us to reduce the role uh, of U.S. nuclear weapons. Um, and, and moreover, I'd point out that there's a uh, tension uh, in uh, two of Biden's uh, priorities. Uh, he really campaigned on um, uh, improving uh, America's alliances 
He had criticized the Trump administration for being too tough uh, on our allies, said that he was going to restore uh, relations with alliances. Uh, and the uh, interim national security strategy said the same thing, that they were going to prioritize um, uh, strengthening alliances, strengthening the rules-based international order. Uh, and so I, I just like to emphasize that there's a tension here, that U.S. allies are depending on a strong uh, U.S. nuclear arsenal. Um, certainly the Japanese, the, the Koreans, Eastern Europeans, countries in the most dangerous uh, security environments are looking closely at U.S. nuclear modernization plans. Are we going to live up to our commitments? Are we going to follow through uh, and be willing to continue to provide them with extended deterrence? Uh, and so um, reducing reliance on nuclear weapons in, in any kind of dramatic way, I think, uh, then undermines that goal. It weakens uh, America's alliances, weakens our extended deterrence, uh, and weakens, I think, the overall rules-based uh, international system that Biden uh, wants to try to uh, strengthen. Because again, I think U.S. nuclear weapons have really been uh, the uh, uh, underpinning uh, the security of this rules-based system of America's alliances for 70 years. Um, so they said they're going to reduce uh, reliance. I think they'll have to find some way to do that. I hope they do it in a marginal and responsible way uh, that allows the United States to continue to have this robust and modernized uh, nuclear force uh, that is um, protecting the entire free world in an era where um, the, the primary cleavage is, is really the free world against these nuclear-armed uh, revisionist uh, autocracies. And so uh, we need to uh, keep ourselves uh, safe in this um, new era of great power competition. So I'll end my remarks there and very much look forward to Q&A and discussion. Thank you, Dr. Koenig. And now I'll turn it over to our friend, uh, Matthew Koslow. Thank you both. Uh, really appreciate the remarks, uh, Dr. Koenig and, and Peter. Thank you for hosting these. Uh, it's, it's such a great uh, honor to be here and uh, having having watched these in the past and, and gained them came from uh, all, all the all the wisdom that kind of comes through in these remarks. Uh, re really happy to have a, a forum that talks about these issues. <clears throat> um, I, I wanted to emphasize a couple things in my remarks here. Uh, first is that I think we're in a, a, an inflection point right now in U.S. nuclear policy where uh, it's the combination of a worsening security environment, but it's also combined with the infancy of our nuclear modernization program. So when you think about it, the decisions that the Biden administration and Congress make today in the next couple of years, it's going to have uh, second and third order effects all the way to 2075 uh, or 2080 in the case of some uh, US nuclear submarines. That's the service life of some of these systems. So anyone who makes, you know, is in a policy-making decision role right now in the US government needs to think very carefully about how their decisions today will affect a future force, a future president about 50 years from now. Uh, and it's, it's, I can't emphasize it's this enough that China and Russia do not have to worry about the same things that we typically take into account. For instance, uh, the US needs to think about, well, what happens when political control shifts from one power, one political party to the other, right? Republican to Democrat, Democrat to Republican. Putin and Xi Jinping do not have to worry about that. They're set, they are the political powers. Now, thankfully, even with all these shifts in political power between uh, the Republicans and Democrats across multiple threat environments, across multiple administrations. Uh, U.S. nuclear policy has really stayed pretty uh, pretty consistent, especially since the, the Cold War. Uh, there's been the drawdown in forces, but basically everyone agreed to that. And uh, Republicans were, were part of the um, group that helped emphasize arms control reductions uh, in the early Bush administration, right? So there, there's been remarkable consistency in a lot of these things. And I think that's contributed to the bipartisan nature. I, I think there's a fragile bipartisan agreement right now on the need to modernize nuclear weapons. And uh, I, I, today I really wanna focus on two of the more 
radical policies, and I call them radical not because I, uh, you know, they're outside of something I would consider, but they're just radical in that uh, they are outside the bipartisan norm, uh, going all the way back through the Cold War. And so those two are uh, eliminating the U.S. land-based leg of the nuclear triad, the ICBMs, and uh, the second is adopting a no first use policy. So real quick, I have a uh, paper out on this subject and I'll shamelessly plug it in here. Um, just because I, I, this goes back to something we were talking about, Peter, that uh, General Berg uh, had a, um, a paper on the value of land-based ICBMs. It was called America's Nuclear Backbone uh, that was published by Mitchell Institute. And that was about five years ago, I think. So it's been one of those issues that constantly needs to be re-upped. And, and there's a whole lot of new young people in Congress and their staffers and in the administration that just aren't familiar with all the traditional roles that ICBMs have played um, in, in US defense policy. And so, um, oh, and I would also uh, uh, second Matt Kronig's report, very good. So uh, one of the things I looked at on eliminating ICBMs, and there's, there's about eight consequences that I found, because um, I wanted to look at the real world consequences of what would happen if we did actually get rid of our ICBMs. And the first and most important consequence is the number of strategic assets in the United States would shrink from hundreds, because there's about 500 aim points that an adversary has to consider with 450 silos, 45 launch control centers. That's a whole lot of aim points they have to consider. If you took all of those away, that those aim points in the US would shrink to about a handful, right? There would be two submarine bases, three bomber bases, and a few command and control targets, right? If that were to happen, a limited nuclear attack we're not talking a massive strike here, a limited attack would significantly and disproportionately affect the U.S. nuclear force, especially if you hit submarines while they're in port, right? But the situation is actually even worse than that, especially with Russia's uh, caliber sea-launched cruise missile. It can be conventional, and it can hit basically all of those targets. So if you have a conventional attack that can have disproportionate strategic effect, that can make an awful tempting, darkly tempting is the words I use, uh, target set for a uh, desperate opponent. Why would we give an opponent that sort of tempting target where they can say, hey, I stayed below the nuclear threshold I only attack with conventional weapons and it would put the onus of escalation onto the president. And we simply don't need to do that. Um, another uh, consequence, real world consequence of eliminating ICBMs is that we would be less resilient in the face of wartime and peacetime attrition. And this isn't talked about a lot, but it really should, I think. Uh, you'll remember the B-2 that uh, crashed in Guam a few years ago. Some little technical sensor took down this billion-dollar plane, and it was out. It burned up. And another example I'd like to cite is that in 2012, a shipyard worker uh, lit a fire on a U.S. nuclear-powered submarine because he wanted to go home early. That fire destroyed the submarine, put it out of commission, cost about $450 million. So you can imagine what would happen if the US had eliminated ICBMs, only had SSBNs and bombers. All it takes is a few peacetime accidents like that to completely throw off the US uh, nuclear deterrent or disable it for or significant portions of it uh, for an extended period of time. Again, as the number of strategic assets decreases, their strategic importance increases. So each time there's a hit to resiliency, 
that is felt all the more. Uh, a third consequence um, is that people rarely, when they talk about savings, if we eliminated part of the US ICBMs or all of them, they rarely account for the increased costs that would result, right? Just like I said, with the strategic importance going up as the number of assets goes down, you're gonna to wanna to defend those submarine bases in port, right? Submarines are invulnerable while they're at sea, but while they're in port, they are vulnerable. So if they take on all that more importance without the ICBM leg, you're gonna to have to invest heavily cruise missile defense, ballistic missile defense, even hypersonic defense, right? And that's just for two submarine ports. Now start considering the bombers. Uh, as Admiral Richard said uh, about a week ago, he might have to put, uh, he might have to recommend bombers go back on alert if there were no ICBMs. That's a huge increased cost. And it takes down the service life of the bombers themselves. So again, all of these are, are increased costs that people who advocate for eliminating the leg of the triad uh, no, never talk about. They don't, they don't take that into consideration. And I, I also wanted to mention a point that the uh, Scowcroft Commission uh, noted back in 1983, where they were talking about the MX missile. Um, one of the things they mentioned is that that's it, a good line. The Soviets, uh, if the US reduced their ICBMs, uh, the Soviets would increase their anti-submarine warfare capabilities and their incentive to do so and their possible gains if successful would increase, right? So they now have, if you eliminated ICBMs, they would have all the more incentive and all the more to gain from trying to, to create risk for the additional two legs of the triad. So in short, the money you would save by eliminating ICBMs would immediately be spent reinforcing the remaining legs and you're simply incurring a new cost for no reason. You've lost capability and increased costs. Now, a quick note on life extending Minuteman three, that's become a, a recent hot topic can we life extend a 50 year old missile one more time? It sounds like a classic rock song or something. Just do it one more time. GB, uh, the CBO, uh, Congressional Budget Office looked at this and they said, well, what would happen if we life extended Miniman 3 one more time, push back GBSD 20 years? What would happen? Well, they mostly found that all the costs would simply be shifted to the right. Whatever you would save is about 18 billion over 30 years. Now, let me put that 18 billion, which sounds like a big number, into context. Over 30 years, that is less than one one thousandth of 1% over those 30 years of the US defense budget. Less than one one thousandth of a percent. Stated differently, 18 billion over 30 years averages about 600 million a year. 600 million is less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of the annual defense budget. If that's the savings you are looking for, uh, you're actually going to take on increased risk because you are now adding a patchwork of upgrades onto an old missile that you are going to want to test all those upgrades to a slept Miniman 3, right? Well, you can't increase the number of tests because then you run out of the missile defense, the missile bodies themselves, and you start eating into the actual deployed nuclear force numbers. So all of this adds up to penny-wise and pound foolish. It's unnecessary. And at the end of the day, you get a less capable missile. Um, I'm, I'm running a little long because I, I get fired up about this Minuteman 3 stuff, but uh, I'll, I'll just make a quick note on no first use. Um, I expect to complete my study of no first use in a month or so, but I wanted to share some preliminary findings. Um, 
I think the bottom line is that nuclear no first use pledges fail according to the standards set by those who promote them. Uh, for example, those who support no first use claim that potential adversaries will take note of our no first use pledge and act in more stabilizing ways during a crisis. But if one really looks at the historical research in this, only three states in the last 40 years have issued a no first use pledge. Uh, Soviet Union, China, and India. And none, I repeat, none of the states that those no first use pledges were aimed at believed that. We did not believe the Soviet Union when they pledged nuclear no first use. We did not and do not believe China uh, when they pledged nuclear no first use. And Pakistan does not believe India when they proposed their nuclear no first use. If the whole point is to get crisis stability, no first use is not the way to do it. Um, and the last thing I'll say on this is no first use is, is kind of the worst kind of policy because it's one that adversaries don't believe, but your allies do believe. And that just only increases the risk of nuclear proliferation. Uh, if your allies believe there is a, an actual threat that could require US nuclear first use, and the US preemptively takes that off the table, that's a, a, a security risk to them. And it, it's simply unnecessary. So in my estimation, uh, there's little to be gained, much could be lost from adopting a nuclear no first use policy. And if the Biden administration means what it says about shoring up alliances, it will steer clear from eliminating ICBMs and uh, adopting a no first use policy. And that's it. Thank you very much, uh, both uh, Dr. Kronig and uh, Mr. Koslow uh, for extraordinary presentations. I would like to go to a question to Matt Kronig first. Uh, in your March article, The Downsides of Downsizing, Why the U.S. Needs 400 ICBMs, you discuss the debate between fielding 400 Minuteman, or now GBSD is the plan, and some people have suggested 300. Some have suggested less, but we'll go to 300. Can you talk to us about what impact that 100 has on both our adversaries and how they look at deterrence and our allies? Yeah, thanks, um, Peter. And I did post this uh, piece in the chat for those who are interested in reading it. Uh, but, but what I do is um, start with the four goals of U.S. nuclear strategy as articulated in the last nuclear posture review. Uh, we want to deter nuclear and non-nuclear attack, uh, assure allies, uh, achieve our objectives if deterrence fails, and hedge against an uncertain future. And I point out how going from 400 to 300 would weaken um, all of those goals. Uh, so when it comes to deterrence, uh, reducing the size of the ICBM force would put a uh, disarming strike uh, could make it more attractive to Russia, could one day put it within reach of uh, China as China expands the size of its arsenal. And then I also worry about how that would uh, play in um, kind of uh, brinkmanship uh, settings. I think having a robust arsenal has uh, strengthened U.S. resolve to um, extend deterrence in the past. Uh, I think uh, adversaries might be more willing to initiate and escalate challenges against the United States and our allies if we weaken um, our deterrent. I mean, in terms of assurance, um, it's been a difficult um, uh, decade or so for U.S. allies. Many of them question whether the United States is still willing to provide um, ex extended deterrence after what they saw as um, uh, maybe a U.S. Uh, withdrawal from the world in the Obama and the Trump uh, administrations. And so I think um, uh, failing to follow through on modernization plans that they're counting on for their security uh, would contribute to those fears that the United States isn't really serious uh, anymore about extended deterrence. And that's not just a theoretical argument. I've had um, colleagues in Japan, South Korea, uh, and Poland um, tell me that directly, that they're watching uh, U.S. modernization, and they would see uh, scaling back of the program of record as a sign uh, that the United States might not be serious about this uh, anymore. Um, achieve our objectives if deterrence fails. We don't like to think about this. But um, the enemy gets a vote. Russia and China could decide to attack the United States. Uh, if we reduce the size of our arsenal, uh, that means those are nuclear weapons that Russia and China don't need to worry about, could free up Russian and Chinese nuclear weapons to do other things, including 
uh, attack U.S. cities and, and kill uh, millions of more uh, Americans than, uh, than would need to die. And finally, hedge against an uncertain future as uh, Russia builds new nuclear weapons that are not compliant with New START, China expands the size of its arsenal. Um, it's possible that uh, there will be upward pressure on the size of the deployed strategic uh, U.S. arsenal. If we wanted to increase the size of our um, arsenal, the, one of the easier ways to do that would be to upload um, uh, ICBMs. Um, but uh, as we reduce the size, then that uh, reduces our upload uh, capacity. So for all the four most important goals of U.S. nuclear strategy, reducing the size of the ICBM force uh, hinders um, those goals. I'd like to turn it over to uh, Matt uh, Coslo. Um, would you also comment, because you've addressed this issue in your recent study about the size and capability of the ICBM force affects the calculus of our adversaries, but how does it uh, affect our allies? And perhaps you could piggyback on uh, Dr. Kronig's remarks. Sure, I think he, he hit a lot of the, the main points. I would also point out that uh, uh, Japan, uh, when we released the 2018 NPR, Japan's foreign minister came out with a very nice statement saying, hey, this is this is exactly what we liked. Um, it recognizes the security environment for what it is, and it, it has prudent uh, options to to respond to it. Uh, I would also note the 2018 Brussels summit declaration in NATO. Uh, they specifically call out it, I think their words are especially the American forces as being important to uh, NATO's nuclear alliance. Now, they don't call out ICBMs specifically, but they, all, they also don't say they're not important. And I think when you talk with a lot of these allied delegations that are always coming through the Pentagon, uh, it would be hard to under or to overestimate the effect that dramatically cutting an entire leg of the nuclear triad would have on their security calculus. They're already a little uh, on edge, just simply because of their neighbors and simply because of some of the mixed signals they see coming out of Washington. And something that is practically irreversible, such as getting rid of ICBMs. Now, technically you can uh, get it back, but as we see with GBSD, it's going to take a long time, and, and we're working with systems that are already in place. So once you get rid of it, it's basically gone for probably 20 years. Um, that would be, no matter how well we pre-brief our allies on a move such as that, it would be a huge shock. And I think it opens up questions, legitimate questions, about can the U.S. Um, effectively stop nuclear-backed coercion? Because one of the things that would happen is if you got rid of ICBMs or significantly degraded them, more countries would be able to effectively coerce the U.S. homeland with their nuclear weapons. Suddenly, North Korea, if they advance enough in their um, ballistic missile countermeasures, would be able to threaten significant parts of the U.S. nuclear deterrent. That's an earthquake-sized shift in the possibilities uh, and the dangers for our allies. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Matt, for that. I, I want to follow up with you. Um, you have a recent publication called Reducing U.S. Reliance on Nuclear Weapons While Others Do Not. And you brought up an interesting conundrum that uh, your boss, Keith Payne, also raised, and that is if the United States goes heavy conventional capability with some missile defenses, but neglects the extended regional, for example, in NATO and the Western Pacific, uh, extended deterrence. Does that not push our adversaries who may feel they're losing a conventional fight to go quickly to the nuclear level and escalate to there where they think they have an advantage? Could you address this issue of whether if the US reduces our reliance on nuclear weapons for deterrence, how are our adversaries most likely to react, particularly situation where conventionally they may be losing. Sure, it, and it's, it's an interesting conundrum that people rarely talk about. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things you can see from the North Korean nuclear arsenal, I think, very clearly is 
they're responding to our conventional uh, superiority. They know that they cannot win a conventional fight. And that's one of the reasons why they really like nuclear weapons and they're not likely to give them up. Uh, something they've always said is, look what happened to Muammar Gaddafi, right? He did not have nuclear weapons and he was able to be taken out. Same with Saddam Hussein. So they always point to these, um, to these instances where for uh, dictator autocracies, they can have strong armies, but they know they can never match the US. So with that publication you were um, addressing, I was, I was trying to tease out how did the Obama administration say they were going to reduce reliance on nuclear weapons? How did they do so in actuality? Um, and one of they, they, there were essentially three things that they did. Uh, one was uh, boost conventional, uh, especially long range precision fire uh, missiles. And another was uh, increasing missile defense, uh, specifically the regional missile defense. And so it's true, if you do those things on the margins, I think you can uh, reduce reliance on nuclear weapons to some extent. The question is, is that wise? And how far do you go? Now, that, that's all subjective because Russia, always says, and I think with some, some sincerity, uh, that they truly fear kind of a conventional prompt global strike, um, purely conventional strategic level capability that we can uh, take out a lot of their strategic assets without actually going nuclear. Uh, that, it, it's one of those things where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? And I don't know that there's a, a good answer. I think one of the, the best ways we can think about it though is if we protect ourselves at the strategic level with flexible and adaptable options, we can strengthen deterrence at the conventional level as well. And the best thing for everyone involved would be to avoid a fight, to just be deterred. And a stronger conventional force when linked with a flexible, multiple option nuclear force is probably the best uh, strategy to get there. Thank you very much for that. I, let me uh, go on to Dr. Kronick. You've explained the other side of this uh, discussion and that is reducing nuclear weapons or nuclear forces, getting rid of the ICBM leg, the long range strike option or two that are mentioned. Uh, Global Zero suggests we go to six submarines as opposed to 12. How will that affect our allies' perception of the United States? And in particular, how would it affect our allies and partners in terms of their sense of not only our extended deterrent, but their sense of maybe they should think seriously about developing their own nuclear capability. Yes, well, uh, to reinforce some of the themes in my opening remarks, uh, you know, U.S. nuclear weapons are special, and, and I think we don't recognize that um, enough. We uh, kind of compare U.S. and you know Russian force sizes and other things, but um, our, our nuclear weapons are special. You know, Russia, China, other countries are looking to advance their own interests uh, only with their nuclear weapons. Uh, the United States is, is really trying to defend the entire free world. Over, over 30 other uh, democracies uh, depend on U.S. nuclear weapons for their security. And so we're uh, building a force not just uh, for us, but to protect the entire free world. And, and so they're watching um, what we uh, do closely when we've retired um, systems in the past, like the TLAMN. Um, our allies were um, uh, you know, concerned about that. Uh, I've talked to Japanese officials who are worried about us retiring the TLAMN. Um, who have, uh, uh, or uh, experts who have said that uh, they're happy to see the new um, low yield submarine launch cruise missile come back. Uh, and so if we were to kill that program, certainly if we were to uh, cut into the triad, I, I think they would uh, view that with, with concern. Um, and, um, you know, international relations scholars discuss credibility in international politics. You know, it's easy to say, have cheap talk, you know, say that you'll um, deter uh, adversaries say that you'll assure allies, but um, you know what really counts are the costly signals. You know, in everyday life, what we said, you put your money where your mouth is. 
Well, this is um, our opportunity to put our money where our mouth is. We say this, this force is to defend the entire free world. Are we really building a force um, to do that? And so I think continuing with the modernization plans um, is important. Um, as we mentioned earlier, the allies are already somewhat concerned that maybe America is pulling back from the world. It seems like there's this isolation of sentiment, what's really going on in Washington. Scaling back um, uh, nuclear plans that we put in place in 2010, when there wasn't much of a threatening security environment and saying we're going to do less than that in, in this security environment, I think would be read by both um, adversaries and allies that we're, um, uh, we, might, we may not be as ambitious with our nuclear uh, strategy as we've been in the past. Maybe we're pulling back from extended deterrence. Uh, maybe we're just interested in protecting ourselves and leaving our allies uh, to fend for themselves, in which case I think they would uh, start to think um, more seriously about independent um, nuclear uh, nuclear arsenals. And in, in the past few years, you've seen a revival of a debate uh, in the expert community in, in some countries where those debates had long been put to rest. I've talked to German experts, for example, who have said maybe, maybe Germany should build um, nuclear weapons. So um, uh, U.S., this robust uh, deterrent has kept a lid on allied nuclear proliferation for many decades. And I don't think we want to take that lid off and um, release uh, potentially um, uh, you know, proliferation among, among friends and, and allies and partners. Thank you very much for that. I'm going to combine a couple questions. Some of you have already addressed the question of where the Biden administration may be going. But I'm going to talk about the development in Russia of nuclear forces that are not part of the START agreement, not contained by that. Uh, they're often called exotic or new means of delivery both outside the treaty as well as new types. I'd like both of you to address how that affects us, but more in particular, the Strat Commander Admiral Richard has particularly emphasized the Chinese growth, saying that it's not gonna double in a decade, he thinks it's gonna double in five years, and then maybe redouble again. And there's a new article by Mark Schneider of NIPP today about this. And it, it's some, Someone said that the only people who know what China has in terms of nuclear weapons are the Chinese, but they're telling anybody. But at least we are looking at what they put at sea in terms of subs, uh, the new mobile and land-based ICBMs and bombers. So I'll start with you, Matt Coslow. Tell us what in particular strikes you about the outside the New START Treaty, Russian developments and the Chinese developments as a whole, how that affects us. Because we have a couple more minutes before we go to questions uh, from the audience. Sure. And I, I think uh, one of the most striking things about the novel Russian systems and the growth in uh, Chinese nuclear systems, uh, the two actually have a common factor, and that's they should never have happened if those who promote nuclear cuts were right. OK, so we restrained ourselves for the past 20 some years. Right. We've come down from Cold War highs. We've lowered our reliance on nuclear weapons. Uh, we've entered treaty after treaty and arms control. All of those things, if proponents of nuclear cuts were correct, should have led to restraint from the Russians and the Chinese, but they didn't. And that's because there, there, there is a linkage between what the US does and what they do, but it's not this mechanical action, reaction, arms race, uh, dynamic that they always say there is. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Colin Gray who used to say that uh, arms control treaties simply drive competition to other parts that are not included in the treaties. And that's what you see with the Russian novel nuclear systems. Um, they are not covered under the treaty and they knew that and they simply dusted off old Soviet designs and put new Russian parts on them and if status six and uh, you know this flying nuclear Chernobyl comes to pass, I'm not particularly worried about it. I'm more, uh, I think it's a fine cost imposition that they're imposing on themselves. They've killed seven of their best scientists trying to make this silly Chernobyl flying cruise missile. So I'm not too worried about that, but I think it is indicative of um, of the, the fallacy of this kind of action-reaction arms race. As for China, it's basically becoming the defining issue of the nuclear field, I think. 
Um, lots of people dismissed the Trump administration when they said that China will at least double. At first they said double, and then they said at least double. And now Admiral Richard has said triple or quadruple, right? And now we have Biden administration officials confirming this in open testimony. They say at least a double. So I think Admiral Richards has it, has it right when he says, uh, look, this is going to be additive to what we are currently planning. Now, there's a very good debate to be had about how much more we may need to deter China and when and for what scenarios. All of that needs to be hashed out still. Uh, but yeah, it's, it is the defining issue for an increasingly assertive China with a larger arsenal and it's going to affect our allies first and then us. Thank you, Dr. Kronick, would you like to comment? Yes, um, beginning with Russia, and um, I did publish a report about a year ago on Russia's exotic nuclear weapons, and so I posted that in the chat for people who are interested. Um, so I, I think what Russia is trying to do is, is to gain an advantage within New START. So they're locking us in with the strategic deployed warheads that are controlled by New START, and then at the high end, they're uh, building uh, these new exotic uh, nuclear weapons that you mentioned. But at the low end, they have this longstanding advantage in non-strategic nuclear weapons, and they're also modernizing there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they, they have a quantitative um, nuclear advantage over the United States with New START. And so there's been a longstanding bipartisan concern uh, with the non-strategic weapons. I think there's concern now with the exotic nuclear weapons. So the Trump administration's approach was to make New START extension uh, contingent on a commitment to get those non-strategic nuclear weapons under control. Uh, I think that was the right approach. Uh, the Biden administration um, has decided that they're, they've gone ahead and extended New START, and then they'll try to use the next um, several years to um, have a bigger negotiation uh, to control those other systems. Um, I, I, I hope they're able to do that, but I'm skeptical. I don't see Russia's incentive to uh, agree to these uh, limits, but we, I think there is agreement. We do need to get uh, limits on these if uh, arms control with Russia uh, is going to make sense for U.S. interest. I'm on China. I am concerned about the Chinese um, nuclear buildup. I'm doing, doing some research on this now. You know, a couple of years ago, I had a report where I said of the three nuclear challenges um, the United States faces, pre three principal nuclear armed rivals, Russia, China, and North Korea, I thought China was the least um, concerning. Uh, just a few years ago, I thought Russia escalate to de-escalate. Some of the crises with North Korea were most concerning. I think I've changed my mind on that. I am really worried about what this buildup means uh, about Chinese intentions and for U.S. Um, strategy. Uh, and the question Admiral Richards um, raised in his testimony recently, how do you think about deterring uh, Russia and China at the same time? And so I haven't seen uh, Mark's report on, on this, but glad that he's done something. I look forward to reading that. I, I think we do need to think uh, hard about this. For a long time, China's nuclear forces were kind of a lesser included case uh, once we've dealt with uh, Russia. But um, if China is building up, building more of a superpower arsenal, uh, then I think that is challenging. And um, one immediate implication is I think it puts upward pressure on the size of the U.S. force uh, if we need to deter Russia and China at the same time. Uh, I think we might be in a, in a place uh, very soon where we have to, where we might decide 1550 uh, is no longer enough. We need to think about um, going, uh, going back up. Uh, so this is an area where I want to continue to, uh, to think, and um, I'll be sure to read uh, Mark's, Mark's new report. Well, we have about 10 minutes or so left. I'd like to go through the questions that we've gotten. One, Matthew, uh, Dr. Kronick, would you make available to us your CBO report that you mentioned? I'd like to send that to uh, Ted Hildreth, who was one of our people uh, online who uh, asked for that report. A uh, couple of questions. One from Patty Geller from the Heritage Foundation. Is there a distinction between no first use and minimal use? Are they connected in terms of a strategy? Because you could adopt no first use, but you could also say we're going to reduce the, we're going to have sole source, sole use, and define that in some way. So are they contradictory or are they complementary? And try to keep your, I'll try, try to keep my questions short, but uh, this is kind of a quick round. So let's uh, keep our answers short so I can get to the rest of the questions. And uh, Matt Costello, why don't you answer that first? Because you've done some work on this. Sure. Yeah. I, so 
there's been some recent discussion about whether sole purpose or first no first use are the same or different. And I, I tend to think of it as a distinction without a difference. Uh, if the sole purpose of your US nuclear arsenal is only to deter, uh, then you would never use a nuclear weapon first, right? Uh, but I, I, I think the, the idea of a sole purpose statement while refraining from a no first use policy, it, it just doesn't work. It's, it's a rhetorical sleight of hand. Um, I, I, would, I think they, they have equal bad uh, connotations, especially for our allies. And, um, and, and, and a sole purpose is, is silly for another reason, because if it's only for deterrence, your, your nuclear arsenal is only for deterrence, and an adversary like Russia uh, uses a nuclear weapon in a limited sense, well, according to your declaratory policy, you're still not allowed to use anything bad because they're only for deterrence. And they're not for achieving objectives if deterrence fails. So I, 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 I disagree that um, there, there's any real distinction between the two. Let me, uh, if I could go to the next question, which is, some comments that reader of the participants have made. One, Jim Miller says, if you remember that the bomber costs in terms of nuclear are 3% of the total. And one of our questions, one of our participants asked, could you reduce the bomber leg of the triad to pay for ICBMs, number one. Number two, is it not true that the new ICBM has very low sustainment costs, at least that's what's projected, versus Miniman? So Matthew Kronig and Matt Custom, could you briefly address those two issues? Could you reduce your bomber leg and pay for some ICBMs? And with the new ICBMs, don't you have a benefit lower sustainment costs? Yeah, so for the first question, can we cut the bomber leg if we need ICBMs? I guess the first thing I would do is question, challenge the premise and, and why this constant search to, to get rid of a leg of the triad. Uh, you know, there, there are very few things where there's a, been a, a bipartisan consensus for over a half century. Uh, there's been a bipartisan consensus for over a half century that we need all legs of the triad. Uh, even uh, officials who've come into office uh, skeptical about all legs, including Secretary Mattis, look at it hard and say, no, we need all three legs. So, so I think we need all three legs. I don't know why we're trying to cut um, a leg. This is a, a important. We're talking about deterring strategic attack on the United States uh, and its allies. Um, so, no, I don't think we can cut the, the bomber leg. And, and even if we got rid of nuclear weapons tomorrow, we would need the bombers for conventional uh, missions. So we need all three legs. On um, sustainment, um, yes. Uh, and, um, you know, that's one of the problems with uh, Minuteman 3 is, is they're so old uh, that um, uh, we're spending a, a lot on maintenance uh, of these um, old systems. And uh, the, the people I've had the privilege to uh, visit um, some of the bases, and uh, they're doing a remarkable job. But I sometimes get the feeling that there are more mechanics uh, on base than um, you know than pilots or, or other things, because that that's a large part of maintaining ICBMs at this yes. point is uh, keeping them uh, up to date. And so, um, you know, going to the cost issue, I've actually seen some estimates that, that show that GBSD is cheaper than continuing with ICBMs because the uh, the maintenance costs are are so much yes. cheaper. Yes. So that is a major benefit. Yes. And uh, I, I would note a, a data point that I have in my new report, wink, right? Um, it, it's a quote from General Timothy Ray, um, who I believe is a head of Air Force Global Strike Command. And uh, things they're hearing is that uh, because of the modular um, uh, way that this GBSD is going to be built, it could mean a two-thirds reduction in uh, the number of times they have to open the launcher closure door, which means they have a security team, you know, lined up. That's a whole bunch of personnel uh, to keep the, the the missile itself safe. So, a two-thirds reduction in those, and a two-thirds reduction in the number of times they may need to actually uh, open up uh, the missile itself. So, there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, reductions, I think. Right. in some of the most costly areas of the program. Now, everyone should remember that ICBMs are the cheapest of the three legs of the nuclear triad to maintain and operate and modernize. 
cheapest across the board on all of those. And so I, th I think what they're building into this system is, is probably going to um, do a, a good job of keeping the costs low because operations and maintenance uh, is one of the biggest cost drivers of a program across its service life. Exactly right. General Ray said that at our symposium in December uh, that we did with Global Strike Command. And uh, the number he used, it was a 70% cut in the number of personnel and security requirement because you can repair the missile GBSD inside the silo without opening the door. It was pretty extraordinary. We have three other questions that are all related and they relate to NATO in particular and then Pacific. But in NATO, is NATO what's the prospects of it continuing as a nuclear alliance, which it is? And should we put more tactical nuclear weapons in Europe as part of NATO to defend and deter the Russians, which have a big advantage there? And the second part of the question we had people asking is, particularly in Pacific, what about enhancing the ballistic missile defense capability we have there as well? And then uh, we have one other question from Dan Miller, which I'd like to call on um, as soon as we finish the answer to these questions. Go ahead, uh, Mac Kronick. Uh, okay, well, I can take the uh, NATO Europe one if Matt wants to do Asia, because I see we're running uh, short. Um, I think um, the, the Russia escalate to de-escalate uh, challenge is a real one. I think Russia's uh, advantage in non-strategic uh, weapons is a real problem. Um, I think we've made progress on dealing with this. The 2018 Nuclear Posture Review uh, uh, addressed this problem, talked about how the United States can respond with limited strikes to Russian escalate to de-escalate strikes uh, as a deterrent, and uh, announced these two supplemental capabilities to deal specifically with this uh, challenge. So I think those uh, were a step in the right direction, and I think it would be a mistake uh, if uh, we were to, to cut those planned capabilities. Um, on um, NATO as a nuclear alliance, um, it, it will continue as a nuclear alliance. I do worry about NATO's um, capabilities. Right now, the only you know, NATO nuclear weapons are the U.S. B-61 um, gravity uh, bombs in Europe. And if you look at the most likely conflict zones and developments in Russian air defenses, I think you know, real questions about whether um, dual-capable aircraft uh, with gravity bombs could penetrate and so I think it would be worth thinking about what is the uh, future of the NATO alliance nuclear deterrent look like? Do we need some kind of standoff capabilities, um, something like a nuclear JASM in addition to or as a replacement uh, for the uh, gravity bombs, I think could um, strengthen NATO as a nuclear alliance. And uh, in regards to missile defense in the Asia Pacific, uh, and I think the question was uh, specifically about does that cause an arms race with China? And um, the short answer is no, it just doesn't. China has been building up missiles well before the US ever started cooperating with missile defense, uh, either with Japan, with the SM-3, or, or South Korea with the THAAD battery. Uh, I think one of the defining issues in the missile defense, especially regional missile defense realm, is what do we do with Guam? Guam is going to be one of the most important uh, assets we have just in terms of landmass and in terms of uh, latent capability of the things that it can supply and things that can fly off of it, land on it. How we defend Guam, especially against a, a Chinese missile arsenal that's growing and can essentially attack from 360 degrees all around Guam. That's going to be extremely important. And, and my personal opinion is we should really heavily invest in missile defense for Guam. Uh, we have some technologies that are coming online that are, are good enough to do that. And the Chinese need to know that they are going to have to go really big in order to take down any part of Guam, which I think will increase deterrence. Uh, let me finish by saying that I want to thank you, Dr. Koenig and, and Matt Koslow, Wonderful presentations. Uh, you covered the waterfront. And I also want to make a note that next Monday, May 3rd, which is a, we have a space power forum with Major General Deanna Burt, who is commander of the Combined Force Space Component Command with the US Space Force. And this will be the third time she's spoken with us. The first time she spoke to us was as a colonel. So the lesson here is come speak in our forum and you'll get promoted.
So uh, with that, um, I hope uh, those of you uh, listening will join us with that. Uh, I wanna thank our participants for your questions. I wanna thank, we had about 85 people join us today. Again, uh, Matt Koslow, thank you for that. And thank you for your ICBM paper that recently was published. And um, Dr. Kronig, uh, you continue to do great work. And it's a, it's a, a thank you for coming and joining us. I wanna thank particularly Camilla Gunziger who helps me put these on. She's the guts of these uh, presentations in terms of particularly the logistics and scheduling and so forth. I wanna thank you, Camilla, for that. Thank Mitchell Institute for hosting this as well. And again, thank you, Matt. Thank you, uh, Dr. Koenig, for this and thank our participants. And we will see you uh, soon uh, uh, at another one of these forums. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, Peter. Great event. Take care.